Kia ora koutou whanau. welcome back to another department of conversation. Uh, this week, the Honourable Dr David Clark. He is a Minister of Health, he is also a local MP for Dunedin North as well. Uh, had a lovely chat with David actually. Now, i got to put all my cards on the table. Um, if any of you listening uh, knew me from previous life, working at radio stations and stuff, I am a political tragic, I love politics, I would follow the New Zealand political scene like nothing else. At the moment, I know fuck all about the New Zealand political scene because Trump takes up most of my time. Now, that may not be good, bad or indifferent, I don't know, but I'm just letting you know. So um, one of the things with the Department of Conversation is we want to have conversations. We don't really do interviews. I'm not really interested in Q&A and Q&A and Q&A and the latest political controversy in New Zealand. So it's not really the kind of conversation that I'm aiming to get. Yes, there will be lots about the New Zealand political scene, but hopefully what you'll hear is when we get politicians in, uh, you'll hear them in a little bit of a different light from maybe what you've heard them before maybe getting some information out that you haven't heard before or maybe at the very least that they've had a bit longer to explain stuff that they might normally get a 30-second clip for in a news item. So, hope you enjoy it. This is Dr David Clark with us in the Department of Conversation. The Honourable Dr David Clark. G'day, Pat. I think this is the first time I've actually chatted with you in an official capacity with the HON in front. That would be true. Yeah. It would be absolutely true. And that's a weird question, but what does it feel like? I mean, is it, it must be kind of cool. I mean, like, it must be always kind of, it's like when you get a degree, you've got those letters after your names. Yeah. Is it quite nice to have the on, or does it, you really not ever come into I conversation? I don't think a lot about it. I, I think it's something that people in Wellington pay I would attention think about to. it constantly. <laughs> every every <laughs> night I went to bed, I went, you I'm would not. honourable. You would not. Well, I don't need no. that, because Patrick means noble man. That's there you the, go. So I've already got it. There you go. No, I think, <laughs> It's, in Wellington, there's a culture with public servants, yeah. and and they're very deferential. A lot of them, yeah. and um, you know they they take great interest in what happens in the Beehive, and they gossip, and they um, and they care a great deal about their work. I'm not denigrating right. it, yeah, but, yeah. but in Dunedin, in my own electorate, yeah. you know, I'm David Clark, and that, right. and and that's people, you know, like what I'm doing or they don't, but they they don't. I don't think think of me in any different kind of way because I've got those letters in front of my name. Yeah. And the doctorate is, is it theology? It is. Yep. That's interesting, eh? It's interesting that, that I want to, I, you know, I want to talk about all this kind of stuff. Yep. Um, but the big thing I was thinking today is, do you still drive the van? I do, I drive it here. Oh, you still got it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that was a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, Amy, who works in my office as of today, um, was just commenting on that on the way. She said- It's um, a piece of crap? She, well, no, it's a piece of crap. She said, she said that um, it's a long time since she's driven in a in a car Piece of or van yeah. that actually has one of those wind up windows she said her younger brother wouldn't even know what it was do you know what's funny I was talking to someone the other day about this the things that have changed in society but we still reference them so when you pull along yep. someone in the car taping something well well, yeah yeah. put it like recording it I'm going to record something on, or, I'm, or I'm taping it yeah Making but the, a video, the thing we do in the car yep. is when you, when you pull up along someone and you want to talk to them you go like that as in wind your window yeah, down, but yeah, no yeah. one does that anymore. Yes. And the same thing, it's like, you know, you, or you do a call me, the call me thing. It's yep. like nobody, you know, or, or the hang up sign. You go like, hang up the phone. Like no one hangs up the phone <laughs> like that now. They go like that. But doing that would make no sense. Like if you're beside the car doing that. Yep. Would make yep. no sense. Yep. Well, even just so, symbols, yeah. you know, like the, I saw somebody say the other day on something about saying, oh, who 3D printed the save icon? Because it was a floppy disk. And, and, you know, even the phone, the little phone icon is a little handset that, those, those sorts of phone handsets haven't existed for years. And things that become part of culture, like someone said to me, oh, maybe it was you, Jace, said to me the other day, no, you know, they probably didn't even know where the word podcast come from. And I was sitting there going... Yeah, that was me, I think. I was going, <laughs> it's a weird podcast. And it's from iPod, originally an Apple product, right. the iPod, and yeah, yeah. now everything's a podcast. Yep, yep. I found, I mean, like, I can, we can we can reminisce on these uh, examples. that When I went to, uh, my last job was running a student hall of residence, and when I turned up there having having worked for a brief stint in Wellington before that in, in the bureaucracy, mm. um, I encountered the student club, you know, that, that um, I had to relate to in the, in the student body that represented the student concerns. And uh, we'd correspond with each other and I'd get these written notes, uh, you know, handwritten notes from them. And I'd say, oh, why, don't, why don't you just email it to me? Oh, yes, Dr. Clark, they were very deferential. Yes, Dr. Clark, we, we'll, um, we, we, we'll email you. And then, you know, a week could roll by and I'd get another handwritten note and so on. And anyway, this, this went on for some time. And, and eventually the, the then head of the student club fronted up and said, look, um, truth is, um, I know I've got an email, but I had to have one to get Facebook. But 
I don't know how to use it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and this is 2008, I think it was. And uh, email, as far as they were concerned, was, an, was a technology of previous generations that they no longer, you know, they, they used it to get into other social media, but it was a ticket to other social media. You didn't use email. Now, I think that's changing. I think a lot of people are using email again. But, that's a, the, but that's for that generation of students, so they're like, email like is a thing of the past. Texting or that's 2008. Facebooking or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. everything through live platforms. I heard a conversation yesterday with someone um, who said, when someone calls me on my phone, it feels like an uh, like turning up on my front door and knocking without an invitation. Yep. Like they find it that intrusive when their phone rings. Yep. It's like an unexpected visitor because they're like, just text me. And yes. I was like, gosh, that's because I'm not there. I'm, I'm still on the phone. That's fine. Yep. But there is a group of people now who actually to call them on the phone yep. is not what they use the phone for. No, I actually feel personally, I've got just that fraction a little bit younger. I do actually feel a little bit like that these days. I call I, you all the time. Yeah, I know. And that's how I feel every time you call me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, good looking suit. Oh, thanks, Pat. Is the suit a bit better than when you were in opposition? <laughs> it looks a bit better. No, I'm not. Again, I'm not. It's, it's not necessarily my kind of thing. I obviously have to wear a suit for work from time to time. I, I, I went to a funeral of someone uh, oh. this morning who I, who actually taught me at theological college, um, Judith McKinley. I don't know if you know her. She was mm. an Old Testament um, person, but also someone that was uh, looked after some of us students and um, so someone I had deep respect for and, and uh, who died of cancer, 82. Um, wow. Which, you know, otherwise fit person. So very sad, but, um, but also, you know, a lot of lovely people there. Uh, so that's why I'm at looking reasonably formal in the electorate. I often don't actually wear a suit in the electorate, although when I'm meeting with constituents, I generally have a shirt and tie. Well, the thing about what we do is we are we are proudly Dunedin-based mm. and we scream that from the rooftops, but we don't feel like we're a Dunedin per se product. Yep. Um, so... That's uh, a, is that a new Dunedin brand you've got on your cap there, Pat? LA. Is it LA? <laughs> um, that's because I do this every now and again. I have this ridiculous thing going on where I'm Irish down here with the ginger <laughs> and I'm English up here with the dark brown and grey. So yeah. that, hiding my hiding my English roots. Um, but you obviously being a national figure, Minister of Health, how's life changed since going from opposition into – yeah, for want of a less wanky word, the big leagues. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it, it, by and large, it's an extra day a week in in Wellington, or mm. an extra day a week away uh, in the recess as well, when when Parliament's not sitting. Uh, which is, I love this stuff in the electorate. So you know, I, I won't say I feel resentful about it because I feel privileged to hold the role, and yep. it's, it's necessary. I've got to go to cabinet. You know, that's where we actually make the decisions. So um, that's one of the differences. The other, the other is that. Um, uh, it, it's, it's blindingly obvious, but it's governance and um, opposition uh, is not. Um, and having been on a few boards and things before I've got into politics, I've done a little bit of governance. I'm mm. not, you know, I'm, there's people who've done more. Um, so I kind of n- know what that's like in theory, and I've done a bit of it. Opposition, you do your own press releases, you manage your own stakeholders, you write your own policy. Well, someone ring, was also you know, saying, you know, the thing that happened... You're um, an operations person. The thing that happened with Claire Curran and the whole meeting saga, and I have to say, since leaving like ZB and leaving like the radio world, I don't know what fucking's going on in the New Zealand um, political scene at the moment. I really don't. Ask me about Trump, I'll tell you everything you want to know. <laughs> but the New Zealand scene... There's not enough tyrants to keep me interested. But I hear things that are going on, like the headlines. And my understanding with the Claire Karen thing is if she had been in opposition, you know, with these oh, meetings and stuff, no there would have been nothing. You can't, so you there's can't. different rules, different yes, expectations, different ways yep. to do things. Yep. yep, yep. And that's right. So in, in government, I'm I'm a decision-making machine. You right. know, I, I, I get this stack of papers every day uh, that I've got to work my way through and I sign my life away on them. You know, what I sign on them is can be checked by the media. Yep. Um, every paper can be found. Uh, and and that means that um, ultimately I'm accountable for the decisions I make. Um, but I don't, I don't, you know, if I think we need to do some more thinking about something, I say to somebody, we need to do some more thinking about this. You might look at this, this and this. Yep. That's the extent of it. Whereas in opposition, I'd be sitting down in front of a, Google and and going through the library and, and and actually going through the the motions of doing every single aspect of it hands on and um and if I'm going to get through this much paper every day I don't have the time to do that and and I am the the critical part I am the thing that holds everything up if, mm-hmm. if I don't keep on top of that paper so it's it, it becomes something where every day you're going through and you are giving the barest uh, minimum of guidance mm-hmm. um or you know you, you, sometimes it's it's strong guidance but you're 
you're directing things, you're governing things. You're not actually um, not actually doing the hands-on stuff in the same way in terms of the government business. So if you're governing the things, right, yep. in, in government, mm. then what's the role of the opposition? So the opposition's job is to hold the government to account. So is it doing the things it says it's going to do? Yeah. Is it is it making hollow promises? And in fact, is it choosing to do the right things at all? Um, so in a lively democracy, uh, the opposition's job is to say, here's what our alternate vision is. Um, here's what the government said it would do and isn't doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for both of those reasons, because we've got a better vision and because um, the government's not living up to its promises, you'd be better off with us as an alternative. That's what an opposition does. I think, again, I'm going to reference Trump for a minute. Um, I heard some really good commentary from someone. Um, Bill Maher at one stage was hoping for a recession. Mm. And he was like, I'm hoping for a recession because then it'll be blamed on Trump and that'll be one of the things that can get him out. And then there was a raft of commentators from the left as well saying how ridiculous that is. Every person in the US, whether you hate him or love him, should want Donald Trump to succeed because it's about the people. Mm. And I heard that and I went, that's a really interesting uh, sort of narrative to run politics through. And like one of the things I want to say, you know, if we ever get like a Simon Bridges or someone else coming in is, what are you doing to help the government for the betterment of the people? Mm. But for you guys in government, what I want to know is, how do you guys work with the opposition, with the with the long-term goal going, because I want to win as a, as a citizen and mm. I want all citizens to win, whether they support national or labour. I want the country to be strong for everybody. So how do you guys incorporate national into that equation and all the parties, but they're the yeah. major opposition, into the equation for the betterment of all the people? So, I mean, there's, there's two really concrete ways that happens. One is that if you want to embed change, uh, you know, that you think is going to be positive for the future of the country, that, that you know, and let's not forget, political parties are made up of members of citizens who are concerned mm. to want a better country and go out of their way, usually as volunteers, to put in hours and hours developing policies or arguing things or, or, or telling their politicians what they ought to be thinking. Um, you've got these parties that do all this volunteering. They bring up ideas. If you want those ideas to succeed and be sustained, they have to be ideas that that are not completely counter to what the next regime's going to do. Mm-hmm. They have to be things with the new regime so comes in and says, well, that's actually pretty sensible do you literally and successful. Ma- do you literally mean wanna... thinking about if and when National wins it back, because they will at some stage, how will they continue this on? Yeah, or, or even, you know, when I'm not health minister, the next health minister. Right. Or another, yeah, or National, if they, you know, if and when they come in again, you know, or, um, you know, any combination of, gov- you know, government parties that could come in. If working for families is a good example, yep. um, the last Labor government put that in. Aunt John Helen. Key, John Key, he called it communism by stealth, right? That was his description of what was going on. He came into government. He did very little, little tweaks at the margins, but he recognised that it was successfully meeting a need. Um, emissions trading schemes, another one. Um, the last Labor government brought in an emissions trading scheme because it thought if you actually give people credits rather than put in a carbon tax, mm-hmm. uh, it's very hard to unwind. Um, and and also those who've got the carbon credits of businesses and National's not going to want to attack them. Um, we've still got an emissions trading scheme. They watered it down. So where, they, you know where they took the, away the guts of it, but you can easily build it up again. It's it, you've won the political argument. So let's use uh, working for families because that's a great one. Mm. Um, because I remember when I was working on ZB talking about this quite a lot, and I used to be of the position that I actually would prefer John Key to come out against it because that's national. That's naturally where National sits, and it always yep. felt a bit hypocritical them then supporting it. So where is the line between basically, you know, buying votes by doing something populist, even though your ethos or your actual, um, you know, how your policies run are against this and actually um, negotiating amongst yourselves going, you know what, this is not our thing, but the people like it, so let's leave it in. So there, there must be a line there somewhere. Yeah, I, th- I think... For a lot of people in politics, they want to make a difference, right? And that's that's the main reason they're there. So having said that, um, I think also the, the Labour Party, and that's what I'm best able to speak to, sure. uh, thinks of itself as a party of change and making change that matters to people. Uh, and so for me personally, I think of the, the time away from family, loved ones, um, that kind of thing, and I think if I'm not making a meaningful difference here, I don't want to be here. There's other things I could be doing. Sure that wouldn't take me away from my family, you know, for most of the week. Um, and and I think, you know, that'll be true for other parties too. So th- there's there's a level, there's some people who, you know, w- w- from my perspective, it looks more like National's happy just to kind of govern and just 
maintain status quo. Mm-hmm. But certainly from my party's perspective and, and my personal perspective, I want to make change. And so the principles are going to come first. Yep. But, you, but you've, you've also got to have a wider eye to how it affects the wider public and whether it's going to be able to be sustained because you don't want change that goes jumps one way and back again. That's never... Uh, ideal for society, um, you know, the examples you gave before. Just say one more thing about the the way in which um, Parliament tries to draw on both sides. The select committee process is something the general public doesn't know much about. Right. Um, it doesn't get a lot of publicity, but it's it's the the way in which the laws go through Parliament. At a, at a certain stage, they go before parties of all colours and a firm debate is held with official advice available to everybody from the government departments uh, and, and often bills are improved in select committees because, um, you know, an opposition party person says, oh, hang on, you've, you've missed this really obvious thing here. No one intended to. And mm-hmm. everyone says, yeah, let's let's fix that up. Let's not put too much politics in that. Let's just tidy that up because it'll be better law at the end of it. So there is a process which tries to draw on the expertise of all the people that are in Parliament. I, so I was talking to, there was somebody who remained nameless that uh, I was um, speaking to third hand the other day saying that they, they, they thought that Jacinta could just uh, wake up one morning and make a new law and then that law would be in place within a week. And I was like, no, no, there's things called select committees and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and know, votes. She, she's, she's the head of a party, she's not the head of the country sort of thing. You know, it's it's there's a lot more to just going, oh, I think I'll change the law to changing a law. Yeah, I mean, if an order, a more autocratic leader, Rob Muldoon, reputedly, um, did actually have a joke that he could um, have an idea while he was shaving in the morning it could be law by midnight. Um, our our democracy in New Zealand is quite thin. We've got one House of Parliament. It makes the laws. And um, and an urgency process, you could technically put something through in one day. And we, we quite often do that with tax laws um, around budgets um, historically, you know, okay. where, there's, where there's something where there'd be a rush on petrol. You know, historically that's been a, an example that's happened in past decades where the petrol tax is going to go up mm-hmm. and they don't want to have cars lined up down down state highways. Right. Um, they just bang it through straight away in a few hours. Uh, so that kind of change um, can happen. But um, generally, if you, if you do that too often, people would start to get, you know, what what people be asking is, is that has the Trump regime moved to New Zealand? You know, it's that kind of, um, you know, there's Although he's having quite a lot of trouble getting anything through at the moment, if we're <laughs> well, honest. That, that's right. That's, in, in the US, it's actually very hard. That's an unfair comment on my part because in the US regime, it's very hard to make change. There's yeah. so many layers you've got to go through that checks and balances, they've got it covered. Um, our system is much thinner, and and um, does it does that mean that um, just you know trying to simplify and and kind of exaggerate in a way without putting words? Does that mean if the leader of New Zealand, whoever that party, whoever that leader is, um, if they wanted to, just that person woke up one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to make it illegal for people to drive Fords, um, could they? What would stop them from putting that that? That legislation through by that afternoon and making everybody that drove a Ford illegal. Am I hearing a Holden man talking over there? No, no, I was just no. trying to think of the most, the most politically correct. Oh, did you example. Say, Do you know what I heard? I heard if it was illegal to drive forward. Oh, you're going to drive backwards? Yeah. No, I, no okay. Forward. Illegal to drive Toyotas. No, okay. You know? Okay, okay. Um, so. In, in theory, that that could happen. What in but the pra- house would what stop. A, that, what in it? practice would happen? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your own. Well, you've got your votes across your parties, and the government always has the majority um, amongst its support parties. When's the main support in that one? But though? only if it's got the support of all of its members yeah, of, of that party, right? So um, depending on how autocratic the leader is and how much everyone falls in behind them, as opposed to works together as a team, um, theoretically it's possible. I, I I've done a bit of reflecting on this because um, I had the opportunity. Um, uh, 2013 to go to the US on a scholarship, all paid um, to go to uh, study anything you wanted. It was a brilliant thing called an Eisenhower Fellowship. Um, old, most US presidents, when they uh, retire, set up a, a mausoleum effectively in a local library or a, some kind of big building structure with their name on the top. Yep. Uh, Eisenhower, post-war, uh, wanted to have an international exchange program to, as his legacy. And so his um, supporters put that together, and I was a benefactor of it. 21 people from... Um, different countries around the world, mid-career professionals, um, and uh, some amazing people which I could talk about as well. But my, my project there was to look at their system and, and say, you know, is this a, is this a, um, a better system or a worse system? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the different systems? You know, should, should we be a republic? You know, look at a lot of those different mm-hmm. questions, Supreme Court, how the, how the whole thing works. Um, and one of the conclusions I came to, you know, with our small unicameral 
system, our one one parliament where laws can be passed in a day, what it does do is it brings forward good people. You know, everyone knows that actually politicians in New Zealand have quite a lot of power at their disposal. Right. You can and, make and a change. And there's a level, you can make a change. Yeah. And so responsible people think, well, if it's not me, it's going to be someone else and yeah. I'm not going to be happy. Whereas in the US, um, I went to a lot of different places. I met some lovely politicians. I also met some incredibly thick ones um, who, who, who were the face of a political movement and all the you know what what they confided in me these you know the, well just told me about how the system works yep. other people write their scripts so they sit in a select committee you know where they're examining a law they've got a script they're not they're not actually examining it they're not reading the papers beforehand they've got some lines to read out in case there are cameras there yeah um, and and I can't imagine that you get as good a laws when the people making it are not directly engaged in it um, they spend, you know, one of the people was telling me that 70, uh, 95% of time fundraising for some of those um, people that are on two-year election cycles. Um, and, in fact, one of the most meaningful encounters I had was with the um, the right-hand woman to the mayor of um, Boston. It was mm-hmm. right after the Boston bombing. So she was there standing in the background, uh, African-American woman, six foot, quite a bit, I don't know. She was a tall woman. Uh, she was the first elected sheriff. Uh, who was a woman in Massachusetts. And, wow. You know, she looked like a sheriff. You weren't going to say no. If uh, she said yes, and, and yes is the answer. Um, in, very impressive, smart woman. She said to me, look, David, I'm, I'm out of elected politics now. I just can't stand it here. Um, because, you know, look down over there, and we're in the mayor's office in Boston, and she pointed down at the Senate. She said, you know, they, they're all in that building. They are all Democrats pretty much. You'd think mm-hmm. they could pass a law, but they can't because here's how it works. Right now, they're actually wanting to pass a, a wealth tax because all of the bridges in Boston are starting to fall down. 1% wealth tax would fix all the infrastructure in Boston. But what happens is uh, a lobbyist goes into the first one and says, Pat, you know, Pat, I know you're a decent, you know, a decent human being who's here for the right reasons. You're a, you're a good man. Yes. Um, and I'm really sorry to take your time. And, sure, and, and, and I snuck in. Yeah. Um, but um, I won't be more than two minutes. Yep, it's really no just to get it off my conscience. Mm. Um Look, what I need to let you know is that um, if you do vote for that wealth tax tomorrow, yep. um, well, you know you know how we put your campaign was a million bucks and we shoveled quite a bit of money. I've been mm. talking to the other donors and what we've agreed is that we're going we're gonna to put together twice the budget and run a candidate against you yeah. from your own party at the next election. Um, you know, I, I, I know you're a, a man of good conscience, so you, you'll <laughs> sleep on it, you'll make the right decision. Just forget I came. I feel embarrassed actually now that I mention it. I'm just going to see... I'm just going to go and see uh, Jason next door. You know, I'm just going to pop in and have a quick word, and um, and I'll be out of here. Thanks for your time. And, and that's how they go yeah. around the building. Yeah. And and bam, because they've already had a million dollars a campaign. They haven't done that through cake stalls. Yeah. Um, you know, they are beholden to a set of interests. Well, there and, is an interest. And, there is an interesting yeah. vibe at the moment in America to get money out of politics. I mean, it's probably unlikely to ever happen. But you know, as soon as they gave corporations the right to right. spend money, like an individual, you know, corporations are individuals. I remember someone um, saying. You know, if, if corporations are individuals and they should be given the same restrictions as individuals, like they can only last 80 years and, you know, all these kinds of things as well. Um, I don't and know. if they display psychotic t- tendencies, yeah. they, you know, they, <laughs> they can get an intervention. Section 8 yep. into a thing. Well, we're talking about them at the moment. I'd love to have a chat with you about America. And what I thought, being the Minister of Health here in New Zealand, I always find it fascinating when I hear, I guess, primarily um, Republicans, but also the CEO of Starbucks was kind of saying this the other day, and he's selling himself as a centrist um, who might run for president. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. That, you know, Medicaid for all, a public health system in America, mm. would bankrupt them and who's going to pay for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you hear Bernie's often stating things like, you know, the only Western country or civilised country or whatever the correct term is that doesn't have a public health system is America. Mm. If you were sitting across right now from one of those Republican mm. believers, be it a politician or be it a you know supporter, and they were saying, well, we can't have free healthcare because we'll go bankrupt. Can you explain to me, as the Minister of Health in New Zealand, mm. Like you'd explain to one of them how we are able to do it and not go bankrupt. What would you say in a synopsis to a person who thinks Medicaid for all would send America bankrupt? Yeah, I would just say that we do it, and every other Western country is able to do it. So you know, it's a matter of political will, really. We we spend about a third as much on our um, medications, uh, and might be less than that through Pharmac. You know, we've got a model that that ensures we get medications at a, at a reasonable price for our citizens. 
we spend a lot less on healthcare overall than the US, um, and I don't have the figures right in my mind at the moment, but you know it's multi- multiples, mm. um, and we get our, our health outcomes are no worse. Well, they're better in some cases. I mean, all we've got to do is watch that introduction for the very first episode of Newsroom that everyone has seen where, yeah. where Jeff, Jeff, I was going to say Goblin, Jeff Daniels mm. goes through all those ways that America is worse in the mm. world than most countries. Yep. And those stats are pretty much accurate. They may have changed a bit now, I guess, maybe. It's several mm. years ago. Mm. Um, but when you say Pharmac, Pharmac, do we get them cheaper, the drugs, or do we pay the same price for them the government subsidises them? No, we get them cheaper, and that, that's oh, sorry. The, well, the government gets them cheaper. Yeah, um, and then does Pharmac is part of the government. No, 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 no. So this is, it's about. Oh, I mean, there's no clipping the ticket. This is yeah. all cost. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, that's what I'm saying. So um, yeah, Pharmac negotiates with the drug companies and says, you know, because in in the US, for example, the 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 drug companies um, or the way the insurance scheme goes, the drug companies charge on an individual basis. This yeah. is this is what this product costs, and your insurance says, okay, I'll buy two of those. You you're on my list. They're on our list of approved products. You've now got that condition. You get that drug. That's the price that the drug company's named. In New Zealand, they say, well, we've got 60,000 people that need that drug. Yeah. 60,000. It's not one by one by one. This is 60,000. What can you what can you offer that drug to us for if we buy 60,000 of them? So when no, I go, we don't like that price. When I go into the chemist, when I go into the chemist with a, yep. with a prescription, I nearly said a subscription. That would be something altogether different. <laughs> a prescription, I hand over my five bucks, which is typically what it is. Yep. That's what it costs the government. No, 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 no. Sorry. Yes, it is subsidised heavily by That's the government. That's what I'm saying. So Pharmac buys the drugs. Yep. And you pay a $5 contribution towards right. the actual cost. Yeah. So it is subsidised by the taxpayer. Significantly. Okay, there you go. Yeah, huge so, so therefore, if, if I'm paying five bucks for something, let's say hypothetically it costs 50, yep. but it, to that individual in America might cost 100, yep. are we paying the 100 that they are and you're subsidising it? Or are you getting it for cheaper? For some, getting it for cheaper, like they're paying fifty for it and Correct. subsidising it at forty-five. Correct. Right. Okay. The latter. Yep. And so the, the overall budget for Pharmac, uh, from memory, is about a hundred million. Mm-hmm. Um, is that right? No, I'm going to get that. Can we check that on the computer? Budget Far, for Pharmac. Budget for bar, budget for Pharmac. Because that sounds like chicken feed. Hundred million. Yeah, it's more than that. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Wait for it, wait for it. These are the numbers I should have at my disposal. There you go, a billion. hundred billion, <laughs> so a billion. So you're only up by 10, decimal 10 points. Fold. <laughs> I it, was, it didn't sound right to me as soon the as I said it. The combined pharmaceutical budget will be increased to a record level of 985 million in 2018. Yep, that was what we did in our so last budget. So yeah, okay. it's a billion. Yeah. Um, and so now I, you're going to do, like in America, how they don't read their budgets? Is this what you're going to do now? <laughs> no, I, I mean... <laughs> Just a pretty face with the, with the lines? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, now you're going to be suspicious. Um, yeah, so we so we spend quite a bit of money as so a country the government on drugs, subsidizes but, but the US would spend more to get the same drugs, significantly The more. thing I think America has just, got wrong, I think that America has got wrong that they think... The, the, the narrative that they sell is it's either all public or all private. Whereas every time I hear that, I think, well, hang on, I've got health insurance, mm. but I haven't been to hospital. For, oh, well, I, I had a, an accident a couple of, 18 months ago, where I fell over in one of our big storms and mm. um, hyperextended my elbow. I went to A&E. I didn't have to call on my healthcare for that. Mm. But you can have both. You can have a model which is, fully funded public health care for people who can't afford. Yep. And if I needed surgery on that elbow, I would have used my health insurance. Yep. Yeah, that's what yep. my dad, my, my dad, he needed a new knee um, and I think the waiting list was a little bit longer than he wanted. So he just went, he had private health insurance as well. And so we did it privately. It cost him a little bit more, but we got it done really, really quickly and subsidised by his health insurance and probably half subsidised by the government on top of that too. Mm. I mean, I'm going to want to, as health minister, see better, stronger public delivery of services so that, you know, uh, people, everyone can get the services they need in a good time. What did I read about um, in the last couple of days, you looking at better outcomes for cancer patients? Mm. So, you know, there's lots of areas where the system can be improved. Mm-hmm. Um, in opposition, we were very critical of how much money the government, the previous government, wasn't spending on health. Yep. Um, and we had independent economists um, do an analysis and their estimate was $2.3 billion more would have been required over the final eight years of their tenure right. to deliver the same level of services that's accounting for a growing population. So what, that's 30 million a year? <laughs> 300 million a year? Yeah. Two point something yep, billion. Yep, that's yeah, right. Okay. Um, 
and, and that's because, you know, you've got an ageing population, yep. it, more people in it every year. You've yep. got to increase it by a certain amount each year and they, they only increased it by a fraction of what was required. So it was still increasing it but just not as, to keep up with the population, mm-hmm. which meant care thresholds um, went up. So if you wanted to get surgery, you had to be this much sore or this much more broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there's a bit of catch-up to do. You, you, you can't starve a health system for that long and then and then fix it overnight. You don't have the staff, you know, because they haven't been employing the staff because they mm-hmm. couldn't afford them. So to train up nursing workforces and all of that's going to take time. Um, but uh, I'm a firm believer, and, and indeed the international evidence shows, that if you have a strong public health system, you have better population health outcomes as a whole. Sure. Um, you know, everybody can access the care that they need, mm. so they spend more time in the productive economy. Um, rather than languishing on a couch, um, unable to work. The um, I'm interested as well in what's happening in Dunedin specifically with the hospital. But mm. I just I, I want to. How do you? How has Trump talked about, handled, dealt with in caucus at the moment? Is be- we don't we don't honestly we don't have a lot. I mean, if you were in caucus, I think it would be different. Pat, <laughs> but it's not it's not a topic that comes up much, to be honest. But surely, I mean, there's that old adage that when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Yeah. So obviously, the turmoil over there must be affecting us somehow. Yeah. And do you see much of an impact from what's going on over there, or 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 do you guys like I do? get up in the morning and see if he's blowing up half of America yet and then kind of go on with your day? I guess we do um, probably probably very focused on making sure that we're governing New Zealand as well as we can. Yep. But you, you said in our foreign policy statements, we continue to assert the importance of a multilateral um, trade arrangement where there's rules-based trade and so on. Um, that's kind of what you'd expect from a small country and one that, that survives on trade. We, mm. we need... Um, kind of good order in the trading relationships um, where things are, are supposed to be uh, done in a fair and transparent way. So that's what we we consistently promote. The um, the outcome for cancer patients we were just talking about, just jumping back yep. to, um, where does CBD, cannabis, marijuana come into that from yeah. your perspective? Because I know we've got a referendum coming up yep. next year. Oh, we were just Googling it before you came in. There's still not a question out as to what the referendum is no, going to no. be. What's the scope of it? Because we had um, Katie Thomason a couple of weeks ago whose uh, son has very severe seizures and she started by using a green fairy and giving him CBD illegally. Mm. She's now on the officially in the system and has permission, so she's got all the yep. – you know, she's doing it legally. Yep. Um, but there is also often a lot of talk about uh, whether it's THC or CBD, but giving help to cancer patients yep. as well. So, so, what, two, so, two, so two things. Yeah, so the can, the cancer side of that when, when it comes to decriminalisation, yep. legalising medicinal, and also the actual referendum, what, what are we going to be asked and what are we going to be able yeah. to say? So Andrew Little's leading the referendum side of things, which is on so he's recreational, standard, he? recreational cannabis. <laughs> we don't, you, you know what Phil Twyford's middle name is. Um, <laughs> uh, so... Um, so the, he's he's leading the stuff on recreational. I'm leading the work stream on medicinal. Yeah, and um, and our medicinal cannabis legislation has gone through now. So uh, it does three things. Um, firstly, it uh, deschedules CBD so that it's no longer an illegal product. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, um, we've initiated a supply scheme, so um, there'll be a, a means. Now that will take a while to all filter through. We've got a, a group that's going to be. Um, overseeing that for the development, which will have industry people in it, and you know, users and all kinds of different people. Um, that uh, that group um, and that that they will be overseeing the scheme. As I said, the scheme itself will mean that we get products coming through of a consistent quality, mm-hmm. um, a known substance. Yep. Uh, because doctors and others simply won't prescribe it if they don't know what's in it. That's what yep, doctors do. Sure. They prescribe things that they know exactly what's in it. And the different strains of um, yep. recreational cannabis have different things in them. They might have different drug reactions if you prescribe them with this other one and so on. So to make sure, and, and the reason we're doing that is because there's a global shortage of these products that are proven or have evidence around them for certain conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sativex is the one that's most well known. It's most widely available here. Um, there's really good evidence around Sativex for certain conditions. There's other conditions which there's not such good evidence around. Um, and that's part of the challenge here. For some of these things, there isn't good evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, But it kind of people think it works for them. And, and so the third thing we've done in that scheme is make it um, provide a statutory defence for people who are in palliative care to be able to take what would otherwise be illegal cannabis because we've said, well, you're dying. Mm. <laughs> if it makes people feel better... Um, we're not going to have time to do the science on that. We're not going to – if it works for them, 
let them have it. So yeah. that's a compassionate thing while that scheme gets up and running. Because ideally, we'd like it to be science-based where um, there's known benefits that people, and for a medicinal cannabis scheme, yeah. where people can say, this is a proven product for this condition and it's affordable. But actually for someone at the in-life stage, anecdotal evidence matter. is enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, they, they're going to die. They, they, yeah. can't, they won't have time to d- develop the kind of things you might do from smoking. So in, in that instance with someone who's passing away who, get, who yep. you basically turn a blind eye to, yep. do they have an, a, a, a way of getting that legally or do they then still have no. to use an illegal? And, that, and that's, that's okay. the, the criticism. And, and it was, a, I mean, as we worked through it, it was one of the bigger chal- biggest challenges with where do you draw the line? Yep. You know, in, in practice, police use a lot of discretion around right. that these days. And there was a recent court case uh, in the past week, I think, where um, a green theory um, uh, was basically excused. Um, because the situation was compassionate. So a judge is actually made a clear ruling on that, not just the police. That's um, interesting. And because there's also news that I did see this week, um, in the Waitakere's in Auckland, there was a whole bunch of cannabis burnt off and a bunch of it was medicinal mm. strains and stuff from, from Green Fairy, so. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I was interviewed on this. I mean, there's, right. there's people... Uh, rightly saying, is this is this really in the spirit of where we're headed as a country? Um, and um, you know, I, the police, I have to say, have moved a long way in mm. my in my estimation over over um, these issues, and uh, particularly around um, you know looking at how how do we move into the future? Um, we've we've been really clear around synthetic drugs, and we're about to put some legislation through uh, that will uh, say that police, when they when they're um, are, arresting people with drugs, if it's for personal possession, that they should treat it first and foremost as a health issue and right. actually put that in law um, so that uh, that is the expected response unless there's a, any mitigating, you know, if there's children so involved not, or they're fearful of some other... Is that not criminal. kind of decriminalising it without decriminalising it though? Um, look, what, it, what it's doing is it's codifying what the police are pretty much almost already doing now. There's, mm-hmm. I forget how many um, people are in prison for possession, but it's tens rather than hundreds in New Zealand now for possession. Um, uh, dealers, sure. Um, mm. the, the international best practice seems to be that if you want to reduce drug-related harm, you treat the, those who are caught in the web of addiction, you you support them. Yep. Um, but those who are dealing and peddling, um, you go after them. That That's in any kind of health response. There's, it's an interesting thing. that there's, there's a variety of things which at first might seem contradictory, but but that's the best evidence at the moment. And what about the actual referendum that's coming up? So the referendum itself, uh, Andrew Little is um, working on that now mm. and um, people will be given plenty of notice so they know what they're, they're voting for. But the for. question's going to be about decriminalising it for recreational, recreational use. That's right. It's a, so it's a different... Yeah. I, I, I mean, I see these things as quite separate issues. Yeah, that's one of the things that came out of the conversation I had a few weeks ago was actually they are different. Mm. Medicinal is very different from from actually recreational. Yep. So so medicinal, so what would we say about medicinal right now? It's basically done, it's sorted. Is it going to be, I mean, because when it happened in California, that was the step towards legalisation was medicinal first. They had medicinal stores and you could go in with your prescription, you could yep. get it and, you know, it was set up that way. Is that what we're moving towards in New Zealand or are we moving towards prescription through a doctor, through a chemist? What? Look, it'll, it'll depend on what the people say in response to the referendum. Right. And um, you'll probably have a better idea of the polling than me on that. Um, it's, it, I, I think in terms of um, drugs generally, people are, are recognising more and more that the, the traditional war on drugs approach hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's a, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, Johan, um, what is his name? Can we find him on the web? Let's find Johan. Um uh, you know, there's been some influential people who have written with a J, I think. Um, he's, he's um, oh, what's his name? Drug law, and anyway, drug law reform, if you put him in there. He, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good read, actually. He, um, Chasing the Scream is the name of the book. Chasing the Scream. Right. Chasing the Scream. Um, go for Chasing the Scream. There it is. I can see it third down, Wikipedia. Um, that is a, that is well worth a read. Um, Johan Hari, yeah. I met him when he came out to New Zealand. He, he has um, tracked um, the way in which um, the war on drugs has happened in the US um, mm. and uh, the impacts of it. Um, he goes back and one of the interesting things is compares um, a prohibition and says, you know, when the alcohol prohibition happened, what happened in the US? Um, did people stop drinking? Actually, no. Um, did people start dying in greater numbers? Yes, they did because um, there were illegal non-quality control products. The rise of gangs who went round and the only way of enforcement uh, where there was an illegal market was through brutality. Um, and you had the mafia 
um, grow. Uh, and before that, when, when Prohibition ended, um, the agency in the US responsible for overseeing mm. um, Prohibition uh, was starved of resources and struggling. And a fellow came in who had a personal drive around these issues and decided they'd chase drugs instead, other drugs. Uh, drugs which were at that time being prescribed much more commonly uh, or reasonably commonly like morphine, um, uh, heroin and other things by GPs, um, recognising addiction and and having GP oversight of how people worked with their drugs. Those uh, GPs in that era were prescribing them and they were much more commonly available. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this guy went after them and said, no one's going to be able to sell these anymore. And so everything went underground. Um, and most drug harm, as he points out, is from... Um, is not from the drugs themselves, it's from unknown quantities, um, volumes in there, uh, strength of product, yep. and from impurities. So, so you're impurities. basically saying deregulated. His, his argument yeah. is that... that um, if it's that, not regulated, thought, who knows? Thoughtful deregulation yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is the way to go. Um, but, you know, if, if you ever go down the track of um, drug law reform, you've got to be jolly careful because you don't want kids um, mm-hmm. getting hold of drugs. I mean, right now the problem is... For example, in alcohol, if you sell to underages, you lose your license. There's a consequence. If you sell marijuana to underages, well, you're just doing something equally illegal as anything else. Yeah. And so dealers are less scrupulous. So there is there, there's another argument in favour of, of regulating these things. But whatever you do, these are harmful substances. Alcohol's an incredibly harmful yeah, substance. Yeah. Um, there's no perfect answer to, to these problems where no one gets harmed, but you've got to go for the least harm approach. Could and, you actually um, draw parallels in a way between the upcoming referendums and stuff and actually the, the, the legalisation or decriminalisation of the prostitution, whereas prostitutes from being instead of going underground and, and all the harmful things that were there, you know, sex trafficking and so forth, but having a decriminalised meant that all of a sudden they had labour law applying to them. They, they could have sick leave. They could have, you know, if they got mistreated by their boss, they could go to the police because it was now... You know, and so therefore it became a much safer environment. So it comes into the open. Yeah, it comes into the open, and, and all of a sudden, sex workers are safe because it's no longer illegal, and so they have all of the they have the law on their side almost, um, not necessarily condoning, but at the same, but it, but it's allowing them safety mm. because yeah. they're. Yeah, I can like, see the yeah. parallels in terms of yeah. it being a health based approach. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's a, there's there's something in that. Mm. Mm. Now we 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 can keep talking. I just noticed you looked at your clock. How, yeah, how, yeah. how are you guys going? Five minutes. Five minutes. We reckon. Good luck with that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I mean, oh my gosh, you know me. We can talk forever. Yeah. Um, I do just want to touch on one thing because yeah. I am a little bit addicted. I, I'm a, I'm a political tragic, mm. right? Um, and I'm at the moment caught up in world politics more so than New Zealand politics, and and so I'm influenced in my opinion a lot by what's happening in America. You're a fascinating bloke because you are a doctorate of theology. Mm. I'm assuming that means so you have religious views. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian minister. Practicing sort of? Yeah, I, I'm, um, you know. I, Do you have a label? I, I hate always, labels. Oh, yeah, I'm a reverend. So I, I, um, I was going to say I... Um, Say I'm not religious about going. I'm not, you know. I, I have lots of calls on my time, so I, I'm not always in the same place every Sunday. But I, I go to go along to Knox Church quite regularly. So the thing that's interesting is you are what is described as left wing. I don't think New Zealand really has left wing like the world would describe left wing. Um, but let's say centre left in a political scene. Mm. You know, places like America, the right, very very strongly claims that religious kind of Christian based title. How does your um, your doctorate, your faith, your beliefs, your um, ethos around religion impact you and bring you to the position you are on more of the left than the right? Because the left are the evil bastards who like to kill babies in the womb and, you know, let the gays do whatever they want. So, yeah. so, so the right in America would say, obviously I'm being facetious. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do. I, I, I read the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, well, so I, I've grown up in the, Presbyterian Church. My mother was a Presbyterian elder, so I've always had a connection with the church, and um, and I trained for the Presbyterian ministry. Um, strong sense that that was the the thing that I needed to do, and uh, there's the service I needed to provide in my in my life um, as a younger man. And um, and then I've had a sense that um, of, of in religious terms you'd call calling towards politics. After that, right? Um, uh, and and but. My um, upbringing um, as a Christian, and and uh, in terms of um, the education that I was fortunate to receive um, as part of my training, uh, has influenced uh, the way I think about the world. You know, I, I I look to the example of 
um, Jesus in the Bible and the things that he did and the the um, the life that he lived, and that's important to me as I think about um, how I go about uh, politics and the things that I do. It's not something I, you know, this this is probably one of very few interviews where I I canvass this. It's not something that I wear on my shoulder, I guess, well, on so, my sleeve. So, but so when it, you, of course it influences all of us are influenced by when you we look hold at, there. when you look at that Jesus character in the Bible and how you interpret that. Because everyone, I think, would look at whatever character, be it a fictional character or a real character or a movie character, and they'd take something different from the story they see. Mm. Why is it that it obviously would be that you see something different in that character than, let's say, a, and I'm not looking for you to comment on this person, but a right-wing American politician who sees Jesus as someone who um, supports what their beliefs are, which is not giving free health care and putting a border wall up to block, you know, the southern states. Yeah. So what, what's the different, what's, who's your Jesus? Yeah, well, the, I mean, uh, the Jesus I see in the in the Bible is one who's eating with outcasts, who's um, hanging out with the, the vulnerable, healing the sick and the, the weak, um, who says blessed are the poor, um, you know, somebody with compassion uh, who um, goes out and serves others, you know, and, and I think um, when, when you kind of read the Bible, uh, the New Testament, um, it's hard not to see those things. A lot. Mm. Uh, the, the, I guess if you're asking me to compare to that person who's building walls and all of those things, I don't think you'll see Jesus if you actually read the, read the Bible. Um, you won't see Jesus doing those things. Mm. It's, it's um, there is a lot of stuff that's around the church that doesn't actually reflect what's in the Bible, in my view. He's probably on the other side of the wall, really. He's not even going to be on the side building the wall. He'll be on the other side of the wall with the, <laughs> with the illegal immigrants. Yeah. There's something so in that metaphor. I, I'm, um, I was going to do a cheesy meme. He builds bridges, not walls. <laughs> um, I want to put words in your mouth now, and you can, you can say, no, that's wrong. But from the way you've described that, Jesus, he sits better on the left than the right. Um, to me, obviously, yeah. I, I mean, I, Do you understand someone on the right? Having that, following that um, same religious look, I, icon? I do think that people, you know, I, I've met people in Parliament who are on the other side of the House who are, who are earnest in their faith, mm-hmm. and, and I don't question that they're earnest in their faith. You know, I think I think people do see things differently. Um, uh, and it's interesting that the ones in the in the National Party, for example, that I know, um, I observe that they have some some real qualities that I that I can admire and identify with. There are mm-hmm. things that I completely disagree with them on. Uh, I, I need to be clear on that. Um, and, and I, you know, will challenge them on. And uh, but, but I mean, actually within um, the model of the, the, the kind of um, a faith community, that's what you're supposed to do. You're actually supposed to have each other on and say, well, how does this fit with the value system? You're supposed to be constantly trying to develop and, and grow and learn. Is this a downside? Is your is your faith a downside on the left of politics? I mean, because no, quite because quite no. often maybe maybe I'm being unfair here and I'm referencing yeah. you know university culture in America, mm. but you know if you're a Christian if you've got that faith belief then you can't be on the left because of those you know exaggerated things I just said and people look down um, on the left often. Well, I won't say often because you only see a snapshot of society as being something that can't relate to it. I mean, if it's something that you you say you don't often talk about it, is that because it's a bit uncomfortable for people on the left to take on board this person with this no, message? Um, I think, you know, for me, one of the really important things, I guess, is the separation between church and state. Yeah. Um, I, in part of my studies, looked at Nazi Germany where, um, where the state tried to take the church under its wing and uh, talk about religion and say that every, you know, every other thing was... Um, lined up with the vision of the state, including religion. Um, and I just don't believe that. I actually think the role of the church is to challenge um, governments, is to challenge right. um, you know, the, the status quo, and that, that's what Jesus did. He didn't, he didn't side with the, the, um, the rulers of the country and say this is how we're going to get things oh, well, done. Well, I, I think what a lot of people forget is he did the opposite. He turned Correct. up and basically pointed at the tax collectors and he pointed at the – well, he sat with the tax collectors. He, ta- he pointed at the church. He pointed at the Pharisees, which were the church, and went, you guys got it wrong – Yep. And went and sat with, as you say, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the yep. the widows and the orphans. Exactly. And so um, so that, to me that means that part of what I'm not doing when I'm in my role as, um, as a minister in the Crown is, um, <laughs> is I, I, I'm not um, saying, you know, that, that it's beyond critique because it's got religion involved. Um, actually, um, I'm a part of a body that is that is secularly constituted and the church has a role in challenging that. Um, and so it's, a, it's an interesting line to yeah. walk, to be honest. But, yeah. but I, 
I'm very deeply uncomfortable with people who who wear their faith in positions of power um, to support their their ideology. I, yep. I, I think that the ideology shouldn't be seen as you know religiously above criticism. So you wouldn't be in favour of um, like a Christian political party? Yeah, that, the Christian political parties make me nervous. Yeah. Right. But but if you look across the the parliament and you look across the senior public service, yep. you'll find a lot of the people who are motivated to be serving the public yep. do have a Christian faith that sits underneath it. It's really interesting. They don't wear it on their sleeve, no. but there are a lot of people there who, who have a faith and see that uh, in helping to create a better society, they're living out their faith. Last question, 30 seconds only. Um when are we going to have a hospital in Dunedin? When, when are we breaking ground? When are we going to yep. have it finished? So when we're breaking ground, we've, we pledged before the last election that we would break ground before the next election. Incredibly ambitious plan, but um, Which is I what, think we're still, we're still... 20 months? Yep, yep, I'm still sticking to that. So um, I, I'm still hopeful that we can deliver on that. I'm, I'm glad we sent ourselves an ambitious goal. It's really <laughs> sharpened the mind and sharpened... Uh, the focus on getting stuff done. Um, I'm chuffed that Pete Hodson's driving that locally as a former health minister, former transport minister, person who knows the RMA, person who knows all the local politicians uh, and understands how bureaucracies work. He's uh, a slightly impatient person that's valuable in that role. Um, we are going to get the first stage finished a lot sooner than we thought and um, I want to say 2023 uh, because there's some immediate pressures on our existing building and the, um, the longer, the second phase of it, the next building, the bigger part. Um, gosh, you're going to put me on the spot for the finish date. It's 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 a it's what four, is it? five or six years a, after that. So a decade project. Yep. Give or so take. That, so that, yeah, not quite. But we'll, yeah, we never. can just we can just pop down to Bunnings and grab a shovel now. <laughs> yes. Get on with There's it. a couple of empty lots down there already. I was so, going yeah. to say you're going to have the gold shovel the night before the election and go, hey, look, we're digging, we're shoveling. That's our first gold <laughs> shovel. <laughs> I think uh, as long as it's before the election, I'll be happy. <laughs> I don't care when it is, as long as it's before the election. David Clark, thank you for your time. Thanks, Pat. Really appreciate it. Good chatting. All right then, David Clark, done and dusted. Now, uh, next week, we are hoping, fingers crossed, to have maybe one, if not two, sporting figures coming through. Uh, we do have some big athletes in Dunedin next week. Uh, we've been confirmed by one group that they would send us someone, um, but there's always this Murphy's Law in the media world that as soon as you announce someone's going to come, they never make it. So you'll have to just stay tuned next week to see if we get some of these people. Uh, the following week, we've got a couple of visiting lecturers, one from Sydney, one from Israel, actually, who are coming through Otago University that we're going to grab onto. And then in the next few weeks, there's lots of people coming up of interest as well. Make sure you like us on Facebook. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube and of course this audio feed wherever you're listening to it it is available in three sources which is Spotify, Stitcher and iTunes. Uh, Department of Conversation find us easily by searching Department of Conversation, not Conservation Conversation on Facebook and other than that, we'll catch you when we catch you Hey Root! Hey Root!